You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 7th of December 2023 on Monocle Radio. Has Russia been reading your emails? Is Venezuela talking itself into invading the country next door? And does it make sense for a country to conscript one of its most valuable exports? I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Elizabeth Braugh and John Everard will discuss the day's big stories and we'll have Henry Ree Sheridan's latest letter from New York City. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I am joined today by John Everard, former British ambassador to Belarus, Uruguay and North Korea, and by Elizabeth Braugh, resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and a columnist for foreign policy. Hello to you both. Hello, hello. Hello. Um, Elizabeth, you are recently returned from Norway, which, which to you is basically the country next door. It is, it is. And it's, uh, the Norwegians are as friendly as as, uh, as ever because good, good neighbours... Do you actually mean they're actually friendly or is that passive-aggressive Swedish <laughs> euphemism? No, they are friendly. And these days one shouldn't take friendly neighbours for granted. I think most countries have some neighbour they don't like, but uh, Sweden is lucky. And you, Norwegian... you, you see, you say that. I've been told the same joke on both sides of that border in Sweden. It is what the Norwegians have that we don't. Well, you know, it used to be that Sweden... <laughs> It's joked about the Norwegians back when they were poor and you know country bumpkin cousins. Now they are much wealthier than than uh, Sweden, and so the, the jokes don't really work anymore. So you you started sucking up to them basically. <laughs> uh, but but what, what were you doing in Norway? So Norway is a, a superpower within the world of global shipping, mm-hmm. and uh, I spoke at a shipping conference there. And uh, there is so much happening within global shipping. It's the the uh, the frontline of globalization and globalization is now under massive threat from uh, geopolitics and just in the past couple of weeks uh, the Houthis have taken uh, to uh, executing a new strategy which is attacking vessels uh, in the in the Red Sea specifically Israeli vessels but the thing is Andrew they define what constitutes an Israeli vessel so you may be a British vessel uh, a Norwegian vessel a Danish vessel they may attack you and seize you if they deem uh, if they consider you to be Israeli. Uh, John, you, meanwhile, have been, and I feel like we should have a drumroll sound effect, but you have been in Preston. I've been in Preston, which I think is the very first mention of this fine city <laughs> on Monocle Radio. Very, the... very, very probably. A big hello to all our listeners in Preston. Absolutely. Hello, Preston. Uh, yes, I've been to Preston. I've also been to St Andrews in Scotland. and I've been to Liverpool. A series of lectures, talks, seminars, all paid for, interestingly, by the South Korean Ministry of Unification. Now, the South Korean Ministry of Unification, you know, for, for listeners who haven't been tuning in recently, uh, has got a difficult job because there is actually no unification. Uh, the two Koreas are as far apart as ever. Well, I mean, you could say that. Or the other way of looking at it is that they have an extremely easy job. I mean, what, what are they doing all day, apart from conducting new on lecture tours of the northern conurbations? Rather sadly, the president of South Korea is starting to ask that very question <laughs> and asking why he should pay all these people for doing whatever it is they do. Anyway, they've decided to justify their existence by trying to raise consciousness of the problems North Korea and have 
created a great pot for people like me to go around getting people to think about the danger of North Korea. I think part of this too is the the, the, the Gaza effect. Mm. Uh, it's not just Ukraine that feels that the spotlight's been taken away from it and that people just aren't worrying about its concerns anymore. The Koreans feel the same. Well, we will be returning to South Korea later in the show, but we will start by experiencing an unusual degree of sympathy for the spooks of Russia's Federal Security Service, or FSB, who, it would appear, have been compelled to spend years in the line of their duty, consuming the private communications of British politicians and other public figures, including, it says here, journalists. And a big shout-out to the fast-tracked hotshot tasked with reading my emails to Dad about the football. The UK government is quite reasonably furious about all this, and the Foreign Office has accordingly summoned the Russian ambassador. We will turn shortly to the actual matter at hand, but, uh, John, while you are sitting here, um, were you, in your line of duty, representing HMG overseas, ever summoned? And what goes on at a summoning? Yes, I was. Uh, painful memories. Um, <laughs> I, I was summoned because this was in Uruguay, a country not no, known for its diplomatic uh, uh, aggressive stance, uh, because I visited the Uruguayan parliament. And while one of the deputies was making a speech, I shook my head sadly. And he, he jumped on this, <laughs> compressed it loudly. And the foreign minister phoned me and said, I'm terribly sorry, you know, friend, ambassador, John, but I'm going to have to summon you and, and complain. And I said, right, oh, you know, summon me away. Would three o'clock this afternoon be convenient? Yes, he said, we'll send you a summoning note in the next couple of hours. See you at three o'clock. And we sat down, we had tea together. And he said, you really shouldn't have done that. And I said, no, I probably shouldn't, should I? He said, you won't do it again, will I? He said, no. And we, he, and we both came out looking stony-faced and the Uruguayan honour was salvaged. That's a pretty, um, that's a pretty low-key summoning, though. I'm imagining, Elizabeth, that this one will be possibly a little more tense. It may even be a summoning at which no coffee or biscuits are offered. Um, how big a whoop actually is this, though? Don't we assume by now that basically everybody's reading everybody else's communications? And if we aren't, we should. I mean, it's, it, it's not exactly a secret that, that Russia and the Russian um, intelligence services are keen to understand what goes on uh, in UK politics, not just within Parliament, but within, within the wider political community. So I think if, if you are in politics in the UK and are not assuming that the Russians are reading your emails uh, and haven't been assuming so for years. You have been a bit naive. And by the way, a good indicator of that is Gmail, which at least my email account gets a warning every now saying uh, we have staved off a hacking attempt. So uh, even even uh, as commercial provider as Google uh, keeps keeps an eye on these attempts and, and tells you when when something is happening. And it's it, by the way, it's not just Russia. It's it's China as well. And not just through, uh, you know, going through your emails, but in fact sending parliamentary researchers your way. Apparently, mm. so it's uh, we live in an age of of uh, accelerating espionage. I mean, John, in your line of work as was, what are you told about what precautions you can or should take to stop? Uh, you know, malfeasant foreign agencies from reading your correspondence, or do you just have to proceed on the assumption that everybody's going to anyway, and therefore you shouldn't put anything sensitive in print? No. I, I mean, the encryption is pretty strong. Uh, you are warned against talking in in, in unsafe places. It's much easier mm. to pick up voice than text. Uh, it, if you are careful about your email, if you give it proper protection, it's entirely possible to make it not quite hack-proof, but very close to. And it's interesting in this to see the list of people that the Russians here are accused of hacking. Par parliamentarians, 
journalists, of course, think tanks, but notice no real attack on the UK government itself. Uh, a few years ago, uh, there were a number of quite determined attempts to crack uh, central Whitehall uh, email systems. Mm. They were staved off and the systems were beefed up, the encryption got stronger, and it became much more difficult. And it looks as if, since then, the Russians have given up and gone for softer targets. I mean, do we think, though, Elizabeth, and it's not just in this particular instance, it, this is a question that applies to all Russian enterprise uh, in this regard, are they primarily attempting to uh, gather information? Because I'm not convinced with a lot of these people, <clears throat> excuse me, they're said to have targeted that they're not going to learn much that they didn't know or couldn't have guessed. Or, or does this fit into that general Russian pattern of just trying to sow chaos, nonsense, confusion anywhere they can? Well, I think in this case, it's them trying to get information, whereas they also have the outgoing efforts where they so spread disinformation mm. in our Western societies. But when it comes to intelligence gathering, they are, I feel they are, they're paranoid. They, they, they try to soak up everything regardless of whether it has any value. And so what they might be getting from going through it's a think tanker's email is something that they could probably have read in the newspaper or heard on the radio, even <laughs> even. Uh, uh, without making any any sort of secret effort, so it, but they they are paranoid, and it's not just it's not just a recent thing. It has been going on for a long time. But that's that's why they they uh, go through these massive uh, go to these massive lengths to to get information in our open societies where you can get so much without any intelligence effort, simply by picking up a newspaper, or listening to the radio. Yeah, I, I think it's worth remembering that when the Soviet Union fell apart and we actually got to see what the KGB had been up to, we realised they had indeed amassed absolutely enormous amounts of information on all aspects of Western society. It was sitting there in box files, unread, unused, unsifted. They got all this stuff and had no idea at whatever what to do with it. They may be quite good at gathering information in. The Russians are terrible at actually processing it and making use of it. And, and on that note, um, since uh, I have written a book about the Stasi, they used the same method. They collected lots and lots and lots of information. Uh, it, so on the domestic side, the HVA on the on the foreign side was actually a lot more professional. But on the domestic side, the Stasi collected uh, lots and lots of information that was useless and that they they didn't then process. But the thing is. Uh, it has to do with, with the reward structure. So they, Stasi officers were rewarded according to the volume of uh, information they gathered. So, of course, they'll gather as much as they can. Well, to Scandinavia now, where at this least encouraging time of year for standing a picket line, several businesses have been poleaxed by a gesture of trans-Nordic solidarity. In sympathy with strike action by Swedish employees of Tesla, Denmark's largest trade union, 3F Transport, is also walking out. Apparently a response to suggestions that Tesla might work around the Swedish strike by shipping their vehicles via Denmark. Um, Elizabeth, a bunch of other workers pertaining to Tesla in Sweden Sweden are always already rather out. Painters, dockers, electricians, um, rather sweetly, the postal workers who are refusing to deliver Tesla license plates. Is this unusual for Sweden or, or, or on the quiet? Are your people just a bit militant? 
They're not militant. They are just uh, they are just loyal to one another. And I think this goes back. It's a long tradition of workers standing up for one another. And I think uh, that is an endearing quality, actually. Uh, and then you can you can judge these strikes as you like. But but the idea that that workers should be uh, should show loyalty to one another is one that goes back a long time and, and has been practiced through sympathy sympathy strikes uh, for a long time as well. And uh, and so that's why you see uh, a number of strikes that have nothing to do or very little to do with the actual workers who go on strike. And there was a, a, a recent case uh, that had to do with um, with the Ukrainian dock workers. So Swedish dock workers refused to, or Steve Dors refused to, refused to process uh, Russian cargo uh, long before the, virtually all Russian cargo was under sanctions. So uh, while it was still possible to import uh, and export to Russia to and from Russia, um, Swedish dock workers went on strike and refused to to process Russian cargo, and that was in sympathy with their fellow dock workers in Ukraine who were having suffering as a result of the war. And uh, I think I think there is there, there is so much humanity in this. And then you can say, well, you know, it, it impedes the the you know free market and so forth. But from a workers' perspective, I think. Uh, it, Showing loyalty to, to to your your fellow workers is uh, laudable. Uh, John, is there possibly also a, a Europe-US culture clash going on here? It is important to note that the Tesla strikers are not actually after more money. I mean, I'm sure they'd take it if it was being handed round, but that's not what's driving the strike. What they want is for Tesla to honour the principle of collective bargaining, i.e. get on board with the idea that if the workers do at some point think they they deserve a bump in pay, they will negotiate with them en masse. Um, is this just an, an American company with all its sort of free market at libertarian robber baron mentality running up against the kind of tradition that Elizabeth was talking about? I don't think it's so much a US-Europe divide. I think it's an Elon Musk the rest of the world divide. <laughs> uh, I mean, you have strong and effective labour unions in the United States. So. And collective bargaining is well entrenched in large parts of the American economy. Uh, but this is Elon Musk, and Elon Musk is on record as saying he doesn't think that collective bargaining, he doesn't think that mass unions are a good idea. He doesn't like the lords and peasants attitude, he says, that this brings apart. Lords and peasants? Anyway, that's what he says. And I can't help thinking that, although I, mean, I understand why the unions are doing this, and I admire the solidarity, and you know, as Elizabeth's just been pointing to, uh, that Elon Musk is quite capable of saying, OK, you don't do it my way, it's the highway, and, and just pulling out. It is, after all, only Sweden. <laughs> I mean, Elizabeth, is it possible that at, at some level um, Tesla and everybody else who has gone out in sympathy is basically just doing this to annoy Elon Musk? <laughs> Which I think is a, a commendable reason for undertaking industrial action. Well, I, I think there are plenty of people who would want to annoy Elon Musk, but it, it, it is a principle. It is about the principle in Sweden. Uh, workplaces allow collective bargaining, allow for collective bargaining, and along comes a company that says. Uh, we are not going to uh, do it this way because we are different. And and that is just such um, a provocative thing to do in a country where... Uh, every workplace, virtually every workplace, has collective bargaining. And and it, it's... Uh 
it, it's just not what you do when you enter a new market. And yes, Elon Musk might very well say, well, if you if you if you insist on on uh, these sympathy strikes, then we'll we'll take our factory elsewhere. But I think he may be too busy trying to to uh, save uh, Twitter from going out of business that he may uh, give the Swedish uh, the Swedish uh, trade unions uh, some uh, liberty to continue their their action. There's also that. Well, I mean, it's it's. There's another similar culture clash, John, just finally on this, that what we're seeing in Scandinavia, the idea of the sympathy strike, there are laws against that uh, in some places, like in the United States and here in the United Kingdom, the idea of of walking out in sympathy uh, with a dispute which isn't yours directly. Where, Where are you on that as an idea? I think that I understand the emotion behind sympathy strikes, but I, I, I was scarred by the 1970s. In the 1970s <coughs> in this country, everybody was in sympathy with everybody else, and everything just stopped. <laughs> I, I know you, and you, and, unless you're prepared to draw a red line somewhere uh, amidst this great morass of sympathy strikes, you either have to say, okay, it happens, and the economy just takes a break for however many months, or you say, no, it's not allowed. It's very difficult to chart a middle way. Well, to South America, where President Nicolas Maduro of Venezuela seems curiously undeterred by one recent high-profile demonstration of the unforeseen perils of invading a smaller neighbour for no especially good reason. Maduro seems increasingly serious about taking a slap at Guyana following the recent referendum in which he invited his fellow Venezuelans to agree that they should help themselves to Essequibo, a heavily forested oil-rich region which accounts for most of Guyana's territory. Some reports suggest a mobilisation of Venezuela's military is underway and a helicopter containing Guyanese officers is missing, though currently bad weather is being blamed for this. Um, Elizabeth, does this really seem like something that is going to happen? This would be pretty outrageous behaviour from Venezuela. It would be, but it already is. The fact that that he has essentially declared... um a sizable chunk of a neighbouring country, uh, Venezuelan territory, and then invited Venezuelans to to vote in a in a an affirmative referendum. I mean, what does that remind you of? Mm. Uh, it, it's, it's it's basically like uh, Crimea 2014, ex, ex, uh, except this time it's a very large chunk of Guyana. It's the, most of it. it <laughs> which would be left with a, a sliver of its mm. its former territory. It's outrageous, and uh, unfortunately. Unfortunately, we are so busy with other conflicts in the world that we are. This is being treated as almost sort of a, you know, a curiosity uh, in a in a remote part of the world of which we know little. <laughs> Otherwise, uh, we would get. Uh, uh, considerable attention and diplomatic action. Now it's it's just happening, and it's it's so outrageous. And by the way, if he succeeds with this, other countries will say, "Well, he just managed to 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 uh, uh, take." Uh, take another country's territory uh, and what's to, to stop us from doing the same because apparently that's that's how the world works these days. Well John then there's the question of if he is serious about this how one does go about stopping him. There are also reports that Brazil which shares a border with both countries uh, is moving troops and armour in that direction but should we be hearing some fairly unequivocal statements from well Brazil and Colombia most ob- obviously uh, in the direction of Venezuela along the lines of back in your box this is 
is not happening. I suspect that that is happening already. Uh, there was a cryptic remark by the Brazilian foreign minister uh, saying that she, she felt that Brazilian diplomacy would prevail. Um, if, you, if you're faced with the Brazilians in a bad mood, you, you do tend to back down. <laughs> Andrew, Essequibo, I mean, this has been going on since 1777. Uh, I mean, it's, 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 it's blighted large years of my life. When, <laughs> when I left the foreign office, I thought I could finally put the Essequibo dispute behind me, but no, Maduro thought otherwise. And uh, it's, it, the important thing to remember here is he's... The, the clock is ticking for Maduro. Uh, back in December last year, the International Court of Justice, the ICJ, uh, agreed that they had jurisdiction over this case. And but Maduro knows that the chances of a, a judgment favourable to him by the ICJ make a snowball's chance in hell look really pretty good in comparison. <laughs> uh, he's got to get facts on the ground. He's got to act. He's got to disrupt. And so he's, he's planning to move in. Uh, whether he'll actually do it, I think, remains to be seen. The Guyana has had the sense to enlist ExxonMobil. They've given ExxonMobil mm. extensive drilling rights so that ExxonMobil is on the Guyana side. If you're against Brazil and ExxonMobil, just how deep in do you want to go? Well, Elizabeth, I mean, ever since Maduro succeeded uh, President Hugo Chavez into power and, and tried to sort of continue Chavez's personality cult, but without the personality, there, there have been doubts uh advanced about the degree to which President Maduro is a full-time inhabitant of planet Earth. Um, is it is there a danger that in doing this, in making this gesture of the referendum and, and getting, dubious though it is, a mandate to act in this regard, that he ends up in the position where he kind of has to do this, even if he doesn't really want to all that much? <laughs> because if, if, you yes. go, if you go this far down this track, if you call out a referendum saying... Should we just annex two-thirds of the country next door and your country, or at least those who can be bothered to vote, apparently go, yeah, and then you don't do it? You do look kind of silly. You do. And uh, yeah, uh, if, if I, I guess they would be equivalent, the equivalent of, of saying, well... Uh, don't 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 uh, don't think about that war I, I was mentioning. You know, just forget about it because I, I changed my mind. But I think uh, Andrew, one of the problems that every autocrat faces is that they don't get good advice. Mm. Uh, their advisors uh, are not in for the right reasons. They and they may also fear the consequences of giving honest advice. So autocrats always get uh, sycophants who say exactly what what it is the autocrat wants to hear, and as a result, every autocrat walks into situations that they. Uh, uh, misjudged uh, and uh, then struggle to get themselves out of. And, and the Ukraine war is such a, such a case and uh, this may turn out to be another one. Well, to South Korea now and a powerful boost for those who advocate the benefits of compulsory military service for a nation's youth. Not only does it instill discipline, promote societal cohesion and teach practical skills, it prevents or at least hinders the production of bloody awful popular song. The four members of K-pop sensations BTS, who had not previously reported for duty, have now done so. For obvious reasons, i.e. the country's location next door to a nuclear-armed paranoid hermit kingdom, South Korea does take this stuff very seriously. National service is between 18 and 21 months. Um, Elizabeth, first of all, as the, the representative at this table of a country which also takes this stuff seriously, or at least still has national service, as a general principle, um, are you broadly in favour? 
Yes, I am. But it has to be done the, the, the Norwegian way. So Norway has perfected a system where uh, it's a selective model. Uh, only about 15% of all, uh, all men, young men and women, all 18 or 19-year-olds, uh, are selected for military service. As a result, the armed forces get the best ones, the most, most motivated ones. And it doesn't. the armed forces today don't need in a European country, don't need everybody to serve. We don't need uh, people for trench warfare anymore, but we need good soldiers, and that's what the Norwegians get. And that's why Sweden has introduced a similar system. Lithuania has also introduced mm-hmm. a similar system. And uh, in South Korea, they have a different system because they have, obviously, a very belligerent uh, neighbor next door and a as a result, they, they have mandatory military service for all able-bodied men, not for women. And Finland does the same. And both country, in both, both countries, uh, young men uh, do their duty. So you, in Finland, you get uh, NHL stars, NBA stars. They all return to do military service in Finland, whereas Russian NHL stars don't <laughs> return to do military service in Russia. And now you see the BTS guys reporting for duty in, um, in South, uh, South Korea. And... Uh, it, that has a, a strong history, a proud history. I think everybody remembers when, or everybody has heard about, when Elvis did military service. Mm-hmm. And don't you think the US military <laughs> uh, all of a sudden looked a lot more glamorous? <laughs> well, John, both these examples do uh, raise a couple of questions which do recur about compulsory military service. And it was it was raised in South Korea about BTS along the lines of, like, all jokes aside, they are a, a, they're an industry. They are a, an absolute economic superpower. And obviously exiling them from the recording studio and the road for the period of their service, especially in their particular genre, uh, it, it could actually be terminal. They may never be heard from again, which, all jokes aside, would not be tremendous news for the South Korean exchequer. Is there an argument that in extreme circumstances you say, actually, you're probably doing more for us by doing what you're doing, you don't need to turn up and peel spuds? Yes, of course there is. And can we remember, this is Korea. I mean, this is not as a straight... You know, straight-line country like the Nordics. There will be a fudge around the edges. So a conversation will take place behind closed doors. Remember that in South Korea, if you are given exemption for military service, you're supposed to show up for three weeks and you then have to do 500-and-something days of voluntary work, uh, work on with the security service, whatever. And I suspect that a lot of this is is for show. The Ministry of National Defence of South Korea wanted to show that it's really, really tough, that even, it can get even BTS into its ranks. And there'll be tremendous part. There'll probably be a few demonstrations. They usually are in South Korea. Uh, <laughs> and, and after three weeks, these guys will be released, you know, with their hair nicely shorn, uh, which will be a new look for BTS. Watch out for the new album. Uh, and they'll go back to doing what they do best. Uh, I, I really don't think that there's quite as much to this as meets the eye. I mean... It- The idea of national service in Europe or a revival of it, Elizabeth, has been floated in the last nearly two years for obvious enough reasons. I know, as we were saying, Sweden, it never really went away. There are countries which have abolished it, some reasonably recently. Um, Italy conscripted people until quite recently. So did France. Actually, so did almost all of Europe apart from the United Kingdom. Um, Do you foresee a time when more and more countries might start to think do we actually need to think about this again? That is already happening. That That's why... Uh 
you've seen Lithuania reinstate mm. uh, military service, but in this selective fashion, because it, it's, it benefits nobody if you force all able-bodied men, and these days probably uh, able-bodied women as well, to do military service, when actually the armed forces don't need this sort of mass army, and, and it would be a waste of taxpayer resources, and by the way, also tax of uh, 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 waste of um, military uh, time, because all these people have to be trained. Mm-hmm. Um, so the selective model really is is uh, the best model, but it, it should apply not just to the armed forces. It should apply to every uh, uh, part of, of the government that is central to the, the functioning of society. So, for example, here in the UK, if we were to have uh, national service, it should be, I think, the case that the armed forces got to select like they select in Norway. But the NHS should get to select uh, you know, the, uh, the, the parts of government responsible for, for border protection, uh, water, electricity. All, all these uh, parts that that are absolutely crucial and that would struggle uh, in a crisis uh, because some of their their uh, functions would need to be beefed up and and that would by the way also give an opportunity for people who are conscientious objectors to do a national service. Just finally on this, John, there are those other arguments in favour of it, which I laid out in the introduction. All the stuff about discipline, practical skills, national cohesion, etc. That would appear dependent on the kind of mass conscription that Elizabeth is uh, inveighing against. This is as an idea, certainly in this country and where I come from in Australia, you tend to hear most thunderously adumbrated from men of a certain age, that certain age being the one where they realise I'm too old, they can't come for me now. Um, Do you buy any of those arguments? Uh, No, not really. I I think... In the days of trench warfare, as Elizabeth referred to, uh, having very large numbers of young men uh, being drilled and having good, good, solid, wholesome discipline instilled into them, yes, maybe that had something, uh, some merit. But right now, uh, if you did try to instill that kind of discipline across a modern Western society, firstly, I, I don't think you could do it. Uh, secondly, what to actually achieve in military terms? I mean, I, I, I agree with Elizabeth. You know, something like the Norwegian model, where you, you, know, you, you have a selection. Uh, coming forward, uh, or indeed the British model, where you don't have compulsion national service, you have a large and rapidly expanding reservist army. Mm. So anybody who wants to can volunteer and get trained and get paid for it. And that system seems to work rather well. That's probably the way to go. John Everard and Elizabeth Braw, thank you both for joining us. Finally, on today's edition of The Daily, it is Henry Ree Sheridan with his letter from New York City. George Santos's political career is finally over. The disgraced former representative of New York's 3rd Congressional District was expelled last Friday for campaign finance misconduct. Santos became only the sixth representative ever to be expelled from the House. So what happens now? Santos's House seat is empty and there'll be a special election to fill it. One of the things that makes this special election special is that there won't be a primary. Instead, the leadership of each party will nominate a candidate to run. The leading Democratic candidate is Tom Suozzi. Suozzi represented the district before Santos, vacating the seat in 2022 to run for governor of New York. He's from a town in the constituency called Glen Cove, and he's a moderate with views that appeal to the suburban voters that predominate in the district, with relatively conservative stances on public safety and affordability. 
But there is one issue with his candidacy. When he was running to be governor of New York, Swozy took on the current governor, Kathy Hochul. Swozy went in hard on Hochul, criticising her competence and ethics in an aggressive campaign. But Hochul won and remains the governor of New York. This means she's a big enough deal within the Democratic Party to block Swozy's nomination if she wishes. Hochul reportedly still hates Swozy for the things he said about her during the gubernatorial campaign. But unlike her predecessor, Andrew Cuomo, Hochul is a wise ruler. She recognises that Swozy probably is the best person for the job, and she hasn't let her personal feelings get in the way of his nomination. Instead, Hochul has harnessed her dislike of Swozy for the greater good. She summoned him to her office and held him over the coals. She demanded that Swozy take a liberal stance on abortion rights, something he hasn't always done, and that he refrain from running any ads that might damage her party's brand. She also asked him to explain his battle plan for the race. Swozy acceded to all of Hochul's demands. He even apologised to Hochul for the bad things he said about her during the gubernatorial primary. So having made nice with Hochul, Swozy will almost certainly be nominated as the Democratic candidate on Thursday. But what about the Republicans? Santos himself was a Republican, and his disgrace means his party is doing everything it can to get their nomination right, to prevent a Santos II, son of Santos scenario. To this end, the Republicans have hired an outside firm to vet their many professional nominees. On the one hand, this is just a race for a single House seat. On the other hand, the stakes are surprisingly high. Santos's expulsion has left the Republicans with a razor-thin House majority. They can currently afford only three defections on party-line votes. If Democrats manage to win the race for Santos's old seat, that could dwindle to two. But the election is also important for vibe-based reasons. There's a presidential election next year, the race for New York's third congressional district is a genuinely competitive one, so it'll be watched closely as a measure of the public's feelings about specific issues and the parties in general. Henry Ray Sheridan in New York, thank you. And that is all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Thanks also to our panellists today, Elizabeth Braw and John Everard. Today's show was produced by Isabella Jewell and researched by Neoma Akwe. Our sound engineer was Steph Chungu. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily is back at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening. <laughs>